0: And I'd done a, uh, <clears throat> I did a pretty comprehensive job, and I found a lot of ironies. Uh, for example, was it McKinley who signed the Tionic Reserve? Right. Same day he signed the occlutin Reserve. The backroom uh, chambers agreement that Stan McCutcheon put together, the three-way agreement that suddenly sprayed sprinkled uh, Tionic with holy water. Uh, didn't cut any ice when with the stroke of a subsequent secretary's pen, the glutin is dissolved. Mm-hmm. And uh, I studied the, uh, met the reserve and concluded which anybody with a passing understanding would recognize to be the only reservation, statutory reservation. And, you know, our interest was focused very heavily in a number of areas, not only the native land claims, but see we were We were dealing then with the uh, executive order that created the uh, National Wildlife Reserve, and I I, up in the Arctic Range. Yeah, and I concluded, with my usual brilliance, that uh, uh, Seaton, I think, was secretary then, had no authority to uh, appropriate the the unappropriated
1: uh, uh, public lands. With an executive order. Actually, I don't mean to. This obviously has nothing to yeah. do with with uh, um, this land claims thing. But while we're on this, I have always been perplexed over the years, looking at I mean, I wasn't around in those days, obviously. Yeah. That um, uh, that Seaton did that. I mean, he was obviously a lame duck Republican, and and. On the one hand, he did that, however, after the whole thing had failed in Congress. And what I was curious about my question is is that, you know, statehood comes along, then there's legislation introduced to create the Arctic Range, that legislation in the House, I mean, Ralph Rivers was on the Merchant Marine Committee. It goes nowhere. It goes, well, no, it went right through the House. Well, right. oh, so, oh, I mean, oh, God, yes. It went, and went whoosh, right, right on the consent calendar as if yeah. there's no that's, problem That's, that's true. Ralph but, hid.
0: Uh, 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 Greedy and Bartlett were so furious with uh, Rivers and what Rivers wanted to do was make it the Senator's problem.
1: Well, he did, I mean, I, what I couldn't understand was suddenly it becomes, uh, I got, it goes that, from being on the consent calendar of being really non-controversial legislation on the House, Mm -hmm. and then it gets over to the Senate, and I've read, I'm probably one of the few people who've been involved in the President Anwar debate who's actually read the entire hearing record in the Senate in those days, and it was quite obvious that Bartlett was doing...
0: I wrote most of Bartlett's stuff. Really, every last thing
1: he could do to stop it, and then... You know, he eventually does that, obviously, and then all of a sudden, in the eleventh hour, as a lame duck, Seaton so comes along with Stephen sitting around being a solicitor. As a solicitor, that was and does it. Now,
0: what? What was the politics of that? Well, I, you know, I never did figure out what it was about the Eisenhower administration and that Nebraska crowd, as we used to call them, the Nebraska Mafia, in the Interior Department, that gave them such a. Dedication. I mean, they, they certainly had no track record as conservationists or any such thing as that. But they were absolutely uh, militant about it. Uh, Stevens, uh, you know, Stevens has finessed that. I mean, if anybody were to suggest that he was part of such an operation <laughs> as that, you know, it would be Alaska political heresy. But he was very much present. Uh, he had been made solicitor as a going-away present. Everybody were, everybody was jumping ship. Eisenhower was on his way out. Uh, his present predecessor is uh, uh, George Abbott. Yeah,
1: George I think Abbott he went up president. to be undersecretary when Elmer Bennett was. Right. Again, as a going-away president.
0: Right. And uh, they gave Ted a, uh, a prestigious title because he wanted to go back and jump into the fray. Uh, we had a lot of fun with uh, Ted those days because uh, he'd been legislative counsel mm. to see And there were a bunch of holdovers who uh, were out of Schedule C in the BLM. A guy named Harold Hockmuth was one of them and a couple of others. that uh, they were forever preparing solicitor's opinions that would be published with uh, Stevens' uh, signature. <laughs> one of them I'll never forget was uh, the case of Billy Roy Duncan who was denied a second entry on a homestead because he elected he lost his first book failed to prove up because there was a lousy fishing season in southeastern Alaska and over Ted Stevens uh, signature this lengthy opinion characterizes commercial fishermen as nothing more than riverboat gamblers <laughs> who, who, who make their bed that's no good excuse. <laughs> the reason I remember that is I called Stevens and I read excerpts. Of it to him, you know. uh, (laughs) My wife had worked for Stevens briefly when he was a U.S. attorney in Fairbanks, so, you know, we were on a first-hand basis. And when I told Ted, we didn't have faxes or anything, and I told Ted that it was over his signature, and I read some really great excerpts. (laughs) Ted starts screaming in my ear, They're fucking me, they're fucking (laughs) me. And he slams the phone down. And that's, that's, that's a fun thing to read. It's a published solicitor's opinion, because about a week later, (laughs) a revised solicitor's opinion comes, giving old Billy Roy Duncan his homestead. And uh, (laughs) when you wonder about how he was able to to create such a a large document with such a scholarly dissertation on the importance of the fisheries to the, the United States and the world, if you look at the uh, Department of Agricultural uh, Agriculture Yearbook for for two years earlier from two years earlier, he just bodily lifted par- uh, chapters out of it and incorporated its his decision. <laughs> but those were those were kind of heady days when the transfer of power occurred. But yeah, you're right. I remember Ted, or I mean, remember uh, Ralph hit out, and uh, it really hit the fan on the Senate side when uh, he punted, and uh, nobody. Nobody, with any common sense at all, would explain anything that Ralph did. I, mean, he just, I, I suspect he just didn't want to get into trouble, he didn't want to, want to inherit that problem. By that time he was under pretty heavy attack, and he didn't want to offend anybody. So, uh, well, what I was getting at is the concerns that we had relative to, to the, the Native rights were kind of a mixed bag with a lot of other concerns. The length of time that the selection process was going to take, where the money was going to come from, how you could ever satisfy the survey problems, and which, which indeed right. became, you know, kind of the tail wagging the dog on state selections. Uh, I think the philosophy that pervaded at least it was my philosophy, and I think I reflected, to some degree, the the, the general attitudes that in you know, the, the pond I was swimming in was was kind of a an attitude that, after all, you know we took great comfort in Tietan saying, "Ah, treaty obsession, extinguished." See, and that gives us the opportunity to be kind of the Great White Father and and be. Uh, terribly benevolent, uh, not recognizing aboriginal rights as being a constitutionally protected uh, sort of thing, but something that, you know, by the grace of the, uh, the almighty noblesse oblige, please, you know, we're going to give. And and uh, I think that that was, in part, a, a belief, and, and I, think a, a, I think a legitimate belief, one that I, I have a hard time shedding. And that is that, you know, we are kind of thinking, you've got a cultural collision, and we never dreamed how, how severe a cultural collision, I mean, before the, the slope, we yeah. dreamed that. But you have a cultural collision, I think, you know, people of goodwill felt that when that occurred, there was going to be a period of time during which the less strong economically, the less uh, able to compete, we're going to get pretty well chewed up, and the idea was to have them chewed up for as short a period of time as possible to get them integrated into the mainstream. We didn't think a hell of a lot about cultural heritage. We didn't think a hell of a lot about the the, the sorts of things that now we're more sensitive to, like like uh, maybe the reason we're creating a lot of alcoholics, and suicides is 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 the the loss of roots, the loss of a. a uh, a sense of belonging, of continuity, of of custom. We didn't think about that a hell of a lot. We kind of felt like it was an inevitable uh, product of of the western force being imposed and superimposed upon the native culture. And the idea of the whole thing is to to just accelerate accelerate their conversion into the quote mainstream end quote. So there'll be fewer generations of them in the alcoholic wards on the streets and committing suicide.
1: Right now, was like that, that was kind yeah. of the feeling? And it's right. Was that was that generally Bartlett's view? Did you ever talk at great length with him about it?
0: Bartlett was a, a very pragmatic person. He he uh, he didn't intellectualize a hell of a lot. He had. He had, I guess, what we what we always used to say, good instincts. I mean, that was the the, the most uh, the most obvious thing about the guy's personality. He was a kind, caring guy with good instincts. But insofar as as developing any kind of a you know, long-range sociological uh, uh, program, that wasn't really much of his thing. Uh, I, uh, I don't think Bob ever, any more than any of the rest of us, really perceived the suddenness, the explosive invasion of the North Country. I mean, none of us really, uh, it was just beyond our comprehension that that's, that's the kind of thing that was likely to happen. I think we all thought that it had to do really with more government jobs, with uh I mean, you know, we knew about Pet 4, and it was always kind of a gleam in everybody's eye in this sort of thing. And, and uh, uh, in Pet 4, for instance, uh, uh, probably the, the one thing I'm prouder of than anything else of being back there is I wrote the uh, Pet 4 bill that got gas into those oh, houses in there. In the right, yeah, right. And, you know. The Eisenhower administration fought us tooth and tongue on that. Uh, Natives don't have a sense of ownership like other people do. The titles are screwed up. You'd have to run the gas lines crooked because the houses are scattered all over. Uh, They're all going to blow themselves up because they're not sophisticated enough to have gas heat. Uh, The Navy doesn't have enough gas. We're going to have to (laughs) save that gas for strategic defense purposes. I mean it was a, a real fight. Uh, that was the kind of thing, pragmatically, that Bartlett would get behind just to the point where, uh, where you know, he'd, he'd do whatever was necessary. Right. same thing with this housing issue. Well, yeah. And I'll tell you what he did on the barrel gas bill. The 1964... No, the 19... What, what year am I talking about here? It was 1960 Civil Rights Amendments, which were being piloted by Kennedy as a, as a, uh, a big deal. It was a, it was a, a major, a major uh, uh, policy legislation. Was uh, on the floor of the Senate, and the barrel gas bill was stuck in Richard Russell's uh, Armed Services Committee. Bartlett came off the floor, and the office was in just, a. state of disrepair and decline. I mean, uh, Joe Josephson was there then. I, Mary Nordale, I think was there. Might have been. I think Mary was there. And Bartlett had voted the wrong way on a rather significant amendment and I've always been mouthy and and, uh, untoward and I'm almost embarrassed. (coughs) I walked into his office and, and we, it wasn't just a barge-in deal. We, uh, there was a senatorial luster there that was respected. And of course Mary Lee was the keeper of the gate. Right. And God forbid we should ever <clears throat> cross Mary Lee. And I went in and talked to the boss and I asked him, I says, why in the hell did you do that? I was just appalled. And Russell had taken him aside. He said, how are you going to vote on the amendment today? And he said, I looked at him and I said, well, I'm sorry, Senator. I don't think I'm going to be in your corner. And Russell said, you know, he says, Bob, it's a terrible pity about those people up in Point Barrow. If I could get the distraction of all these damn fool civil rights amendments off my mind, I'd be able to concentrate (laughs) on reporting some legislation out that I know is very important to a lot of people. And Bartlett told him that he was gonna stick to his guns. And uh, Russell told him, he says, I'll remember. And uh, when he got to the vote, Bartlett just knee-jerked onto Russell's side. And we got that bill reported out in a week. (laughs) I mean, you know, and Bartlett told me something then that I'll never in my life forget. And of course, I, I, I am the last person to, look to for objectivity about Bob, because he was like a father. He says, you got to make compromises. He says, but, he says, as long as you never forgive yourself, and you never imagine you did the right thing, you know you're doing your job. And he was so right, you know, it was uh, incredible. But we were thinking about all those broad land issues, and, and what I what I concluded, when I, do, I had done all that research about the Oklutna uh, the and the Kylenik and Metlakatla and the various things that had happened, and we all thought reservations were, were the worst thing that ever could happen in Alaska. And I think, frankly, I'm, I'm convinced we were right there. The, uh, the notion I had was that we had so damn much land that we weren't going to be able to get surveyed. Because even even at the get-go, we were afraid of that. That was one of our biggest fears. Uh, my feeling was that that uh, if we took the bull by the horns and adopted a, a grant program from the state lands, that would be quite consistent with the notion that the rights were extinguished on a federal <laughs> But it would recognize the internal governmental imperatives that we had in order to 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 have a manageable uh, population to, to govern in in the state of Alaska. And the idea was that a, a, a relatively narrow circle, and I I don't know what acreages or what diameters, would uh, be virtual ownership in the in the Western capitalist sense. Uh, Using the townsite trustee type deal that we've we've done on public lands in the past, a broader circle yet that had to do with the uh, subsurface subsurface rights. I never even gave thought to uh, to uh, subsurface and surface. Never gave thought to surface rights in terms of agriculture or anything like that, you know. And then a broader circle sphere of influence. That had to do with the uh, with strictly subsurface. Uh, I wasn't sophisticated to realize that if you did something like that, you were going to leave people with barren, uh, with empty pockets, and you were going to enrich other people. I never, I never got that deeply into it. You know, you uh, as the the act did when it talks about you know sharing and, or the bounty and that sort of thing. But the idea. Was and it was it was altruistic in a sense, but it also was uh, uh, a little bit Machiavellian because I was was convinced, as was the delegation, that the New Yorkers <laughs> were going to get us. You know, <laughs> we were all afraid of the New Yorkers. We were afraid of the Indian consul uh, with a very association American. Yeah, 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 because they were uh, they were really thumping the drum a hell of a lot. And uh, uh, their militants frightened us, probably no less than the militants of, uh, of uh, any minority race uh, frighten the people in power. But uh, I, I never really thought about it like that before.
1: But I think that probably was an element of it. Right. Well, I was, look, I was thinking about that as I was reviewing this stuff this morning, and and you know the first real mark that the association put up here was when they sponsored the Barrel Conference in December of '61, and your proposal sort of pops out the spring of '62. Yeah, so it's, it, there
0: was a, a, it was no question about it being a catalyst.
1: We were very very uh, nervous and jerky about that. And uh, well, what did Bartlett think of the association? Did he view them as helpful or as troublemakers or outsiders? Outsiders. Uh, uh,
0: Bob hated Easterners, and uh, he had every right to hate Easterners. I mean, he was a uh, uh, guy who was born and bred to hate Easterners, just the way I was. I, you know, I don't have any problem with that. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a joke, but there's a seed there, you know, and, and you never really get over it. And uh, he felt that. Uh, you're basically talking about a bunch of do-gooders who are going to get up there and spend a hell of a lot of money to cause a lot of trouble to preclude our ability to solve our own problems. Uh, he was highly receptive to the idea of uh, of this uh, uh, state initiative. He liked the idea of a state initiative, and it would appeal to him because it, it, it's kind of consistent with this ethnocentricity that. Uh, that governed a hell of a lot of what uh, what he thought he did, and uh, as to uh, as to the, the outsiders, uh, they just they just build trouble. That's all there was
1: to. It. Now, now, did in terms of, of a sort of the birth of of your proposal, um, um, was that. Is the result of an initial mandate from Bartlett? I mean, was there ever a staff meeting in which he encouraged all of you folks to think about these things, or did you just sort of off on your own know that this was an issue and sort of put your thinking cap on on your own and then brought it to him? or how did all that come
0: Well, out? I was his land guy, and I, I probably came to Washington as the most underqualified and, uh, and ill-prepared uh, person that you could imagine
1: actually, maybe yeah. I should back you up about that. What, what... maybe a little biographical stuff for the... Oh! How did, you know, like how did you... where you're from and, and how would you get involved with Bartlett And how did you go back there? And
0: uh, well, what happened
1: was I was at the
0: University of Alaska at Fairbanks, and I graduated in 1957. Uh, I had a disagreement with the ROTC, which resulted Basically, I, I worked for Jessen's Weekly, and they wanted me to do a lot of things like go to drills in the afternoon, which interfered with work. And By that time I was married, and we had a kid on the way, and, and I didn't have much truck with him. I only was in there because they gave me $65 a month, it was <laughs> like found money. So when I, uh, depending on whose story, when I separated from the ROTC unit there, uh, I was uh, going to end up a credit or two short. And the department head was a guy named Don Moberg, who uh, was a, a really a, a good guy. He had some other problems and kind of got run off later. But, but uh, he told me that uh, he could give me a special topics deal for a paper to pick up my two credits that uh, would put me over the top and I'd, I'd be OK. And uh, what the assignment was, was uh, to do this dissertation on the Tennessee Plan. Hmm. Okay. And, uh, of course, I had been at the university during the Constitutional Convention. I knew all about what the Tennessee Plan was, and I was, I was pretty political back in those days. And uh, so I said, okay, that sounds good, and I did a lot of uh, research and uh, researching in, in 1950. Six from Fairbanks, Alaska, was kind of a challenge. I what I did was wrote to the archivists in each of the states and had sent a shadow delegation. And what I found out was really kind of amazing. You know, I I knew it was it was a paper requested by Bob Bartlett. And also I would mention that Bob in those days drank a bit, and uh, he had given a speech, and uh, he and. uh, I and three or four other students ended up all night in South Fairbanks getting boiled. So I knew who Bob Bartlett was. It wasn't anything personal, but so uh, I did the paper, and I found to my great surprise that the Tennessee plan was a virtual fraud. That uh, uh, my God, I, I don't remember the details. It's been too long ago. But at least the uh, the delegates from one state ended up getting indicted <laughs> for misappropriation of funds, and it was all really done with mirrors, and uh, there was no such thing really as getting admission by sending a shadow delegation in Congress and this sort of thing. So I did that paper and it, Moberg sent it on to uh, Bartlett, and I think I got an acknowledgement or something like that, went on to other things. Well, I had always perceived, because I was very, very naive politically, that Bartlett would immediately bury that and just really be pissed off that anybody should talk about this noble effort to uh, become a state as being a fraud and a sham. Had I been sophisticated, I would have realized that there's nothing in the world that would make Bartlett happier than to learn that historically these interlopers, Egan and Greening and Rivers, who were there to steal the glory of statehood away from him, along with Atwood and the little man for statehood movement. Uh, my God, it just made his day. He, was, he just <laughs> fell in love with the whole idea, showed it to a lot of people, and, you know, all very quietly. <laughs> so when I graduated, uh, I went to Miami because my dad was down there and he had cancer. And uh, I had registered to go to the university, or, or to, to George Washington. I wanted the combined curriculum for uh, Law and International Relations. Uh, from which they got a lot of CIA people. I found out later. I was very naive. <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, I wanted to go down there, and, and we also wanted to get the hell out of the cold. You know, I, I had enough of that, I thought. Had you grown up here? Yeah, that? I grew up in Anchorage. We came in 48. But, uh, well, I got stranded down there. I mean, I, I had money because I'd worked in construction, and, but I got stranded. I was only able in two years to get eight hours of law school, in, and because uh, of the tuition. And, uh, what happened was uh, Bartlett uh, was on. There was an old senator from Florida, know he was from back east somewhere, who had a talk show on, uh, on the radio in uh, Miami, and Bartlett was invited down to be his featured guest. Well, I kind of remembered that experience, you know, and I thought, well. I was pretty desperate. So I wrote him a letter, and I, you know, it was one of these, you remember, you don't remember me, but type letters, you know, and, you know, kids will write, and I got, uh, I got a telephone call from Mary Lee, and she said that he was going to, where could I be reached, because he was gonna, yeah. So I was working for the Internal Revenue Service in a job I detested and it just happened that I was three days out in the field squeezing money out of people who couldn't afford it, and two days in, and he called several times trying to get in touch and we missed conditions So then at the urging of my uh, parents who were down there, they took our uh, kids and Nancy and I just jumped in the car unannounced, I checked that he was there, he just drove straight through that 1100 and some miles and I presented myself at his doorstep. And uh, all I really wanted, all I ever dreamed of, was to get the IRS to send me to Washington State, where at that time we had the Witchy program, mm-hmm. and I could get free tuition. And I figured if I got the tuition and worked for an IRS, I'd make enough up to go to law school. And we had our first interview with him. That's the university there, you know. And, uh, He says, uh, well, I've got a quorum call, so Mary Lee will show you around. Well, she sized us up and kind of screamed us. And then Marge Smith had to size us up. And we didn't know what the hell was going on. We just thought (laughs) they were being very nice. We got back in right afternoon, and uh, Bartlett looks at me. You know, I'd driven all damn night, and I'm kind of dopey. Bartlett looks at me, and he says, uh, I stated my business. And he says, how would you like to work for me? And I looked at him and I says, well, Senator, just to be dependent on whether or not, you know, I could make enough money so I could go to law school, because that's what I want to do. And my wife kicked me. (laughs) Just gave me a big, healthy kick, you know. And Martin laughed, he saw it, you know. And he says, well, how much do you make now? And I told him, and he says, well, if you made that much here and had enough more, what else would you need? And I said, well, i got to buy books and there's tuition and, you know, aside from that, well, are you paying your bills now? I said, yeah. So I said, well, I'll come back at 2 o'clock. And uh, by 2 o'clock, Mary Lee had called BLS and got called all the law schools and done this big long memo about the cost-of-living differentiation between <laughs> Miami and D.C. They added that. They added the average law school tuition and book expense, and added a hundred bucks to that, and that was what I started at. And uh, it, uh, you know, just... I, I even today, I, I get all, all teary-eyed about it, you know? <laughs> and, so, and what he got was a very, very... Uh, breed kid who wouldn't have had to be told to kill for him more than once, but, you know, if anything he ever said to me, I would have done and I was always proud to be with him. He, you know, he was just a fabulous individual. Right, now, what what year would that have been? That was uh, 1959, right after Right stage. after sea. Yeah. Well, see, he was up to his ass in new positions. All right. Josephson All right. had come on. Right at statehood in the delegate's office. And uh, he brought Marge Smith and Mary Lee over. And uh, it was just Joe and Margie and Mary Lee and a couple of secretaries. And then Bill Foster came along later, and Hugh Gellert was there for a while. And uh, uh, it, uh, it grew, you know, as I said as well. But it, it was a. Uh, he, was, he was really believed in austerity. The only time I ever got any damn raises was when we had a kid. <laughs> we ended up having four children before I got out of law school. And, and that was the only time I ever got any damn money. <laughs> but yet, he got word back. I got up here and I took a job as a Superior Court law, law clerk and was making three four thousand less than I made there. And uh I got a call from him. I, I've never known for sure I had my suspicions about who reported. Because I couldn't pay my fuel bills when so you're just really serious trouble. I got a call from him, asked how I was doing, I told him I was doing fine and this sort of thing. And he says, I looked at my records and he says, uh, you were here for four years and you never took a vacation, which was true, I never did. And I said, well, I've never thought about it. And he says, well, he says, I'm making arrangements. And got And uh, I got uh, a U.S. Senate check for each of the next three months. You know,
1: it was just, it was uh, I, I you could have blown me away on that one. No, it's interesting. I've talked with a lot of people from the old days, including Mary Lee, Yeah, you know, who's still alive yeah. and kicking well, right. there in Silver Spring. and it's, yeah. It's she ought um, to be
0: in Shannon, that's where she always wanted to go.
1: <laughs> to China?
0: Shannon, Ireland. Oh, oh, Shannon, Ireland. Yeah, that uh, is her. But her mother's not alive.
1: No, she she's. Uh, I didn't even know she was still around. And you know, Vic Fisher's yeah. very close to her. And Vic, when he was in, uh, in D.C. last year, had had actually gone out of his way to look her up and see how she was doing and stuff. And so he mentioned. Me that she was still around, and I, mean, I had a, you know, delightful. Uh, she is a wonderful, so wonderful woman. She was my mentor. <laughs> but anyway, she, you know, everybody speaks. Yeah. All those people, to this day, exhibit such loyalty. You know, oh so. yeah. Well, I, you know, I think one of
0: the nicest things anybody in my life has ever, heard, I've ever had anyone say to me was, uh, "Bydee," uh, before she died, used to call me every time she came back. She'd we'd go have a martini for lunch <laughs> and she was a delight and I think the biggest compliment I ever got was by grabbed my hand one time and it was shortly before she died and she says Ken of all Bob's boys you're the only one who ever tried to use it hmm. and I just oh. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's the truth or not but that was her perception and I thought that was a damn nice perception the uh, was, was Bartlett a person with a point of view about Native people? Yeah, he was. I think, he, I think Bartlett uh, had what uh, people of his generation had, and that was a, uh, a perception that we had to make those people more like us in order to do the best we could to help them. And and as long as they were less like us, the more they needed kind of to be left alone, or if they were gonna have intercourse with the uh, the, the white civilization, they had to convert and become white natives. I think that was, uh, I don't know whether others have expressed any opinions, but uh, I'd be curious to
1: know whether my perception is. Well, actually, I haven't talked to Joe about it yet, but uh, I did come across a, actually a, a tape of some stuff that he did for the statehood movement with the Klaus Noski did with Joe years ago. Yeah. And uh, Joe says pretty much the same thing, you know, that he was on those, um, you know, he went out with Bartlett and, and Marston when they would make these sweeps through the villages, yeah. you know, to tell everybody to vote for statehood. and, right. and that. Uh, Bartlett's view of who he was dealing with was a very sort of—he you know, cared about them, but it was a very sort of paternalistic kind of, did, simplistic. Did Joe tell you the Bob Bartlett new big bullshit story? No, that's a great story.
0: Yeah. He was up in the Arctic a couple years after statehood. He drew the short straw and became senior senator and uh, and had the short term. And. Uh, he got out of the plane and they went to a village meeting and this very old Eskimo lady walked up to him and says, Bob Margaret, you come to the village, you tell native people, statehood come, everything be good, blah blah blah, she goes on. She says, now need permit to gather wood don't get this, don't get that. She goes on and she looks at him and leans over and says, Bob Bartlett, you big bullshit. <laughs> but, <laughs> what did he say to that? Uh, nothing. He told the story out himself. <laughs> Frequently there's very little left to say. Well,
1: well that's interesting you know, in, in that regard is that certainly Bartlett and, and Greening and everyone went out and, and really stumped. For statehood in the Bush, and you look at the statehood votes, and the Bush voted overwhelmingly for statehood for the most part. Oh yeah, you know know, there was never any discussion that you know there could, in fact, you know, you vote for statehood and you're going to create this new sort of monster that will have its own agenda with respect to you know you had enough trouble with the with the federal government, and now all of a sudden you're voting to have these other people interested in your situation. Um, Yeah,
0: well, you know. It, uh, I went through the statehood movement and as I say I, I was very alert politically I was naive as hell but I was alert and uh, you know we really we really believed uh, taxation without representation we were very personally affected by the McCarran Walters Act I, I god I was just in high school you know and that was one of the biggest insults you know, wow. the was that the Karen Walters is the one that made it difficult to, to, to enter the United States oh. from Alaska. Oh, was that the when one where they, they had customs instead? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, oh. right. And, uh, you know, there, and, and, and the feds, when I was in high school, the old city hall had the police station on the front lawn, and it was an old barracks building. And right next to that was a little bitty barracks building, which was the MP station. And above the MP station, they had a huge red cross that said Pro Station. And I mean, you don't have to be a terribly sensitive person to feel that the federal government deemed itself an occupying force in a semi-hostile environment when you see things like that. I mean, you know, you don't have to really have a chip on your shoulder. And uh, when McKay came up here and went to Mulcahy Park and told Alaskans that They weren't entitled to statehood because uh, uh, they didn't act like ladies and gentlemen because they booed him. I mean, those (laughs) are the kind of things that a young kid remembers, you know. And uh, the, the, uh, Matt's terminal out there, controlled air traffic. Nobody who was in the newspaper, who had ever been in Time magazine or you'd ever heard about on the radio, ever got into Anchorage off the goddamn base. They were there with the military. And the generals had taken a tour, you know, through the colonies and titter and, you know, point their fingers and this sort of thing. And we were paranoid about it. And Bartlett shared that. And I, I, I as to the villagers, I don't think that they'd had any decent experience with the federal bureaucracy. I and mean, the, the Native Health Service treated them terribly. And uh, the, uh, the times they got attention, uh, it was negative And the rest of it was mostly benign neglect. Uh, and, of course, we all clutched and embraced the phony fish trap issue. We got, that was, oh yeah, and I remember, I get so embarrassed when I think about, <laughs> you know, poor Jim Fitzgerald trying to put a brief together to justify abolishing fish traps, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we, you know, those were heady times, you know, and, and uh, we felt very, very strongly about it. Uh, and I, I think the Bush folks uh, generally trusted Marvin uh greening uh, greening was another study entirely and Bartlett uh, used to uh, take great pleasure he, he had a penny sack. Uh we had delegation meetings and those were finally terminated because all they involved was Ralph Rivers reading his constituent mail out loud and asking people how to answer it <laughs> that, you know <laughs> rivers was, he was something else but uh, Greening would call, he'd get mad about something, get hot. So he'd call a delegation meeting, and he'd just announce it, you know, as a, a fiat, everybody had to be in his office. So Bartlett would call me and he'd give me documents that he felt that might be necessary issues, briefly me, and sent me paddling over there to the, we were in the old Senate office building, Greening was across the street, he had paddle over there. I'd get in there, and George Sunberg would say, where's Bob Bartlett? And i tell you, you know, the first time, I said, well, I'm sorry, George, you know. He's not able to make it, he asked me to come in, listen in, and George said, oh, shit, you know. So he'd go in, <laughs> and he talked to the old man in greeting, and you could hear him yelling, I don't want to see anybody, I want, where's that goddamn Bob Bartlett? I want him here now. And, this, and I got thrown out of greeting's office. <laughs> oh, it had to be a dozen times. And the first thing that had happened when I'd get back, Boss talked. he'd get in, just like a little boy. He'd say, "What did he say? <laughs> what did he say?" You know, and I was <laughs> I was the pawn designed <laughs> to, to irritate the hell out of Ernest Greeny, but because I was lower than Snot, you know, and I was uh, all that Ernie could get. But uh, the two offices, uh, the the they kept up the facade of uh, cooperation. But Bartlett was a consummate senator, team player, uh, to whom were owed a jillion political chits and uh, who honored his, hence his support for uh, Lyndon Johnson at the convention, you know. Uh, But uh, Greening, you know, uh, uh, he couldn't get squat out of the Senate, because he wouldn't play by the rules. And I've got mixed emotions about that. It, it uh, The fact is, uh, Ernest Greening was probably one of the most arrogant, selfish, self-centered uh, sons of bitches I ever met, and was at the same time one of the most brilliant and articulate people I've ever met. I mean, he was, he was just that kind of strange blend. And it, you couldn't help it. To, uh, but admire, him, but he was awfully easy to dislike. You know, he just it's just uh, East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's also
1: interesting, you know, I mean, that uh, you know, Greening made Bartlett and was very much his mentor early on and then sort of that you know, as as frequently happens with mentors and that and was and acolytes, you know, they sort of passed each other by, and I think that you really to, irritates
0: If you're interested in that part of it, you ought to talk to Mary Nordahl. Of course, Mary has, Mary, you know, Mary's opinions, I'm an opinionated person, but Mary is just incredibly opinionated, but she, she has a lot of insight into the earlier years and uh, uh, some rather damning uh, opinions, as a matter of fact, about Bob when he was in his drinking days. He, I've always perceived that Bob Bartlett stopped drinking because one day he woke up and he already knew he had diabetes, he was going to die. One day he woke up and realized that statehood really could happen. And I think that 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 was a turning point for him. I think that after that, you know, I I think he became kind of a guy with a mission and uh, that
1: so
0: would have been it. in the late 50s then? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say that it was, uh, well I know he was still drinking uh, in, 50, in, in the mid-50s. I went up Fairbanks in 53 and left 57, about 54 55 I know he was drinking because uh, I drank with him. But uh, then I didn't have anything to do with him until uh, 59, and uh, he was an absolute teetotaler at that time. He always had a drink in his hand. Was always at a different level. Never saw it touch his lips. I never figured out how he did that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he smoked incessantly. And uh, was very unhealthy. That uh, was another one of his bad habits. So then he pretty much had the drinking under control from there on out. Uh, well, from the time from '59 until he died, I never knew him to take a drink. Oh. Never saw him. Uh, not so much as a, a glass of beer. And uh, that was at a lot of social occasions in his house, and you know, here and there, yeah, he just he just didn't
1: do it. And, uh, well, I guess actually, sort of back to your original proposal, how uh, sort of got off. Well, no. Sorry, guess, oh no, I find needless to say, yeah. I find this stuff uh, fascinating. But I guess one of the questions that, that um, I guess I sort of started this off on was whether or not this had been a specific policy directive from Bartlett to sort of do some thinking or whether or not you... I think I was a self-starter. I
0: did all the land stuff in the office, a lot of mundane, you know, like Billy Roy Duncan's homestead right. and uh, constituent mail. And then my side thing was was these land analyses. And I was very troubled, and we were all very troubled, about the possibility of uh, of the, the, the thing getting all out of control and uh, I think I just I think I just kind of self-started on the thing that's that's my guess you know and uh, he I remember he liked it I wish to hell I could find the earlier memos but uh, I have no
1: idea where those have got to all right, well this is the only stuff I could yeah. find in the far yeah.
0: Well, what I did go to, uh, I went to such. Must have been. In any event, uh, who the hell was Attorney
1: General? Oh, it was George... Uh, George uh, Hayes? The, yeah, George Hayes.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Attorney General in those days.
0: So, I kind of stated my business to whoever it is I got screened by and uh, the word came back in no uncertain terms. matter of fact, they did talk to Bill Egan. And, and the message was basically, you go tell Bob Bartman to take care of what's going on in Washington, and Bill Egan's is going to take care of what's going on in the state of Alaska. And there was uh, Bill, who I counted as a dear friend, was, uh, was always real parallel Bartman. It was an awful you know, and, uh, and very jealous of his prerogatives. He was a jealous guy. I, mean, I don't think he ever forgave Hugh Wade for uh, permitting the state to survive while he was ill. Right <laughs> <laughs> I mean it, just, he, it was terrible. You know? But uh, they didn't want any truck with that whatsoever, it just died died of mourning and then when I got back. I wrote this, uh, this letter. That, that letter, I think, was requested by uh, Barton. I think, I think Barton had told me to write the letter, and uh, that, it was a dead end. I don't know. Now, this date, this is 62. By 62, this probably, this may have been shared with Greening's office. It's possible that this was shared with Greetings office. The Greening people used to steal things, just absolutely merciless. I did a uh, fisheries bill that got passed, as a matter of fact, and it was uh, a formula, federal formula based upon, we had to find a formula that would give us a lot of money, and the problem is Manhattan and these other bottom fish on the East Coast, uh, the only way you could and and the West Coast, what we had to do was find a formula where the states where we needed the votes would vote for us. So this was a baroque, crazy formula where we talked about the poundage in some coasts and the value of the fish landed in others' coasts so that we could end up getting a big chunk under the formula. We needed to get California a big chunk and we needed to get the eastern seaboard money. And I sent a draft of that sucker over to uh, Herb Beezer and uh, we waited to see what had happened and what happened is Greening introduced it with about 25 co-sponsors, not including Bob (laughs) 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 Bartlett. Did did Bartlett have
1: a word with Greening about that kind of behavior or did he just let that sort of stuff? I never
0: saw a front hole uh, quarrel between those two men.
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, They ignored each other They avoided each other. They badmouthed each other, but I never saw them in a room having a knockdown drag out. I saw them in the room together a lot of times. It was always a very uh, cool, courteous uh, uh, exchange. Uh, uh, Greetings seemed to treat Bob like an illiterate colonial most of the time. Maybe that was a perception born somewhat of loyalty, but. Yeah. Oh, sure. Don isn't my partner, Jeff Roth. Don Mitchell. Don, 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 Mitchell. Don? Mitchell. Nice, nice to meet you. you. I got a... Oh, on, But, uh, uh, yeah, Bartlett delighted in uh, talking about the frailties. He had a collection of uh, early articles, you know, when when uh, Roosevelt jerked, uh, jerked uh, Ernest out of the, uh, the uh, Pan American Union talks fomenting resurrection. Saying things which in this day and age made a lot of sense, (laughs) but he was fomenting revolution down there uh, because he didn't think people ought to be subjected to the dictatorial policies of some of our trusted allies in the Pan-American Union. And uh, the popular lore that Barton professed to to know was that uh, uh, Ernest
1: was exiled Juno to get him the hell somewhere. Like Any, that's, yeah. that's the popular conventional yeah. wisdom that Ickes hated Ernest Green and uh, yeah. you know he was the one guy you know Ernest is supposed to be working for Harold Ickes right now yeah. Harold Ickes turned yeah. around there'd be some deal going down that was doing nothing but causing him trouble and who had done it but Ernest Green yeah. who was his guy. Well, I, I don't find that hard right. to uh, to believe at all. Uh,
0: Bartlett Bartlett kept uh, uh, files with contemporaneous records, uh, you know, contemporaneous news accounts of Ernest Greening and the other <laughs> young radicals. I mean, he he seriously disliked Ernest Greening, and Ernest was such he, he was such a headline grabber and so eloquent. Well and I don't know, uh, did you know Bartlett? Did
1: you no? You I was uh, I didn't get up here until the have was, you ever sorry.
0: heard of any, Heard any of his recorded speeches? Mm. He had to be by far the worst public speaker that anybody has ever been subjected to. He was wonderful contemporaneously with a group of two or three people, just fabulous storyteller, uh, just uh, warm and gracious and amusing. But if you put a microphone in front of the man, he was horrible. Just absolutely awful. And he, he also was not a he was not a, a headline grabber. I wrote a speech, I forget, oh God, it was a political speech. Eisenhower, what the hell was it? It was during during the national campaign, and I. It was, it was really good. Good speech. Not typically Bartlett. In fact, I think he only gave the, he didn't he had it in on the record, you know, but uh, I don't think he did that because he knew I worked hard on it. But, uh, <laughs> uh, after he, doesn't he says? Uh, he says he rose and he, he, he says he won't have to make a speech. He said, of course, it was prepared by and he names me and this sort of thing. And, and one of my jobs was to go whenever he was going to make any major statement. Was, <laughs> I'd go sit on the floor of the Senate, and as soon as he sat down and the reporter changed, I'd run back into the Senate reporters and expunge <coughs> all the bullshit where uh, where he gave credit to other people and that sort of thing. Uh, Greening <laughs> had needed a protector. This is a wonderful Miss Greening story. Ernest was death on foreign aid. Just absolutely death on foreign aid, you know. Yeah, the charity begins at home. And uh, there was an appropriation bill and it had a whole bunch of money that was gonna go to, uh, to the Third World and some to African nations. And I, it was, Jimmy Eastland, who was, I don't think it was Talmadge, because Eastland was so much more clever than Talmadge, and Eastland gets up and he says, uh, he said, will the distinguished senator from Alaska yield uh, for a question? And Eastland started leading, and Ernest was all carried away with his own eloquence. And he says, as a matter of fact, the junior senator from Alaska agree? that the technology we're giving to some of these people is beyond their capabilities to use at this point in history. Well, yes, of course, I'd agree with the distinguished senator from Mississippi. And would the distinguished junior senator from Alaska agree? This, that, and everything. I just kept going. ESA got him on a roll. And the last question. And as a matter of fact, would not my distinguished friend from Alaska agree that some of these people are just barely out of the trees? Well, I'd certainly agree with the distinguished friend. <laughs> Christ, I, it, was, it was pandemonium. And, you know, most of the people on the floor knew that Eastland was doing a fabulous number on the old man. And somebody called George Sudborg, and Sudborg got there, and it never appeared in the record. You know? <laughs> It's
1: just fantastic. Well, then, this was your idea on this land claims thing, though. Obviously, was not stolen by Green. So I assume no. they were never involved in that.
0: I don't think they were. Uh, and I, I'm just saying that it might have been given to them uh, after the fact. I don't know. I don't remember that specifically happening. By 62, this was toward the end of my time there. And I... Uh, by 62, very little was being exchanged with uh, Ernest's office. I mean, they, they, the relationships were really chilled out by that time. Did, did you leave in 62? No, or? I left in 63, yeah. Did I? Yeah, I left in 63, I think.
1: Okay. Did, uh, so then I guess the, to sort of summarize all of this, the merits of this proposal, even though it had Bartlett's support, Egan dismissed the whole concept out of hand Bartlett. because this was a Bartlett idea and I didn't want to, look, I didn't want to hear about it.
0: That's that. basically right. And, and uh, Bartlett never pressed it. Not that I know of. And I, well, I noticed
1: here, my friend Bill Besh. Right. There's late as 66. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently was still kicking around. Yeah. Uh, Besh expresses a lot of operational problems with it, but not, Yeah. Um, some of which I think were reasonable criticisms. You know, yeah. Weren't, um, I guess that, actually that does raise another interesting question and that is, uh, um, did you guys have any dealings, 61, 62, 63, with the interior department about land claims at that time? Oh yeah. Know, know, Jim Officer was down there at the BIA and yeah. other people and there was really not much, you know, they had this big, task force that they put together in 62, and not much really happened in the. you know, it wasn't until 67 that the department could get yeah. its first land claims bill out, so.
0: Well, during the Eisenhower period, uh, Eisenhower's, uh, of course I was only there during Eisenhower and part of the, the first part of Kennedy, and uh, Bartlett told me that the, the Eisenhower administration was was more highly political in terms of dealing with congressional delegations than any of the previous uh, administrations, of which there had been several, with which he dealt. Uh, you just didn't get into the White House if you were a Democrat during the Eisenhower years. Uh, and that was that was carried forward in the departments. For instance, for uh, the first two or three years I was there, Ted Stevens was uh, legislative liaison officer for the uh, Department of the Interior. And I could call some lowly statistician in marine biology and ask a question or address a letter asking a question, just a statistical question, and it'd be answered by Ted Stevens. Hmm. I mean, he, they, had, the departments were universal in that way. We kept our lines of, administ- of communication open through the former Truman Schedule C guys who got popped into GS-15 and 16 roles as adjudicators and that sort of thing. And we had good liaison, good lines of communication, and a good spy network. But as to official discourse or dialogue as to how the problem could be solved and what solutions might be acceptable to across party lines and across the executive and uh, legislative branch. I was not aware that that was even occurring. Uh, Bennett and Abbott were absolutely arrogant, totally uh, uh, I mean they, they, they were just like ivory tower guys and, and uh, uh, disliked, uh, you know, the they were tolerated. Uh, Occasionally they had to appear for summons, uh, uh, when summonsed. Uh, One of my acquired talents there was uh, I could, I could predict, and I put a little note at the bottom of the draft, what level of department officer was going to do what when the letter (laughs) was received. Because there are certain key words that you use to let somebody know that uh, it's going to be on pain of punishment if you don't at least get an undersecretary knocking on the door, and of course that worked. I never missed with the military. You know, <laughs> I, I could I could name the, 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 you know, not only whether he'd be a Burt Colonel, but how close he was to a star <laughs> when you wrote those letters. So you know we had visitations of that sort, but insofar as having any intelligent
1: dialogue, I don't think it ever occurred. Well, how about how about the, when Udall took over down there his P- 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 Well, Udall wasn't viewed, I
0: <laughs> think, as being a real uh, a real plus, because Udall, Udall brought with him uh, some conservationist instincts that uh, were not popular with the lifelong gold miner from Fairbanks. And that was how, that was the selfish, how Bartlett perceived himself. And uh, I don't, all, you know, got along a hell of a lot better with greeting than uh, he did with, with Bartlett. But uh, really, surprisingly enough, I mean, you know, the, the Senate committees, uh, the Interior Committee and the Commerce Committee, it uh, didn't seem to me to really give a rat's ass what the administration was doing, and the feeling was mutual
1: right, right up down the line. Right, well certainly in the House, I mean, you had Astonol, yeah, wearing the committee and, and, and Udall had been a junior guy who kept his face shut, yeah. you know, before he got to be secretary, yeah, and yeah, I can't yeah. imagine the old man, no. you know, um, suddenly being interested in Udall's policy views about Alaska Natives or anything else. But I'm not sure that there was ever a policy. I, I, when I think
0: about it, I'm not, I'm not at all sure it was generally a reactive type thing, you know, that anybody was trying to formulate policies, I think that people like the, 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 the foundations and the uh, Indian affair groups and, and this sort of thing probably were uh, advancing uh, uh, pet proposals, but there was a lot of polarization very little dialogue. I suppose you've looked at some of the committee hearings, oh, sure. uh, and uh, uh, I think committees, you know, I one thing I took away from Washington was a pretty firm belief that without very strong, intelligent uh, committee staff, uh, it would be impossible to run the country, I mean, you know, because really if you waited for executive guidance, at least in my lifetime, to decide what a national policy was, you'd never have any national policies.
1: <laughs> well, of course, that's one of the... I agree with that. In my experience in D.C., yes. I spent a lot of time back there, is that one of the reasons the whole country is going to pieces is because of that, you have the committees attempting to micromanage the federal executive, and they do it because they're filling this power vacuum, because left yeah. to its own devices, the federal executive can usually be counted to do the wrong thing, but you can't have a committee over the long haul, micromanaging well,
0: agencies. And, and what really exacerbates the problem is this this tremendous increase in the, the I think, assumption on and, and, uh, uh, doubtful constitutional grounds of executive prerogatives, which constitutionally wouldn't exist except by sufferance of people who ought to be objecting. And then you couple that with an unwillingness to exercise the power in a policy sense, the vacuum becomes even greater because uh, uh, I don't think the federal government has a goddamn bit of business managing the public lands on an ad hoc basis. It just doesn't make any sense, and, and you know the you know, the end result of it is the kind of mess we we have here. All right. Well, now then, what it would
1: it be would we I'd be correct then in assuming that during those earlier 61, 62, 63, there was never real any real working effort between the delegation and the Interior Department to try and get the department off the dime on land claims or
0: well I mean, were there any
1: other initiatives other than the price your initiative I,
0: I think that historically the price of statehood was creating an a, a completely undefined status of Aboriginal claims, using, as I recall, the, basically a paraphrase of the Treaty of Cession of not disturbing the, you know, and everybody knew that wasn't the end of the story, but it was the price of statehood. That was just the price that had to be paid. After that, you know, the. Uh, Hell, we believed that the uh, the Native Land Claims Act would work. Honestly, God believed that. It's hard to believe we believed right. that, but we believed it. And it was a good utopian idea, because remember what I said at the, at the get-go here, this philosophy that the way to help these people was to bring them into the mainstream. What's more mainstream than having a commercial corporation? You can't get more mainstream than that. We were overlooking, we were not, perceiving, we weren't sensitive to the, the, the importance of the cultural heritage, nor were we taking into account the special status of Indians constitutionally and the fact that there's a huge bureaucracy that requires Indians as a constituency to continue its existence. And I mean, this was far too complex to be solved with, with the Native Land Claims Act, it was just far too, too complex. So, so you know, it, it, it was thought, I think, that at least, you know, uh, this will make it go away. This will stop it from being a, a problem with which people are going to have to contend.
1: But there still, though, in those early years, 61, 62, 63, were just sort of drifting inside the department
0: then. Oh, I think so. I don't think there was any federal policy at all. I think the federal, to the extent an executive branch policy existed, it existed for the purpose of perpetuating the growth and autonomy and strength of various bureaucrats whose constituencies were Native people. I mean, it, it was just as clear as that, and I, and I think that probably continues right on today, with without much change at all. You well, if
1: you look at the Indian Self-Determination Act of what, '68? Right. However uh, many years ago that was, that was the whole point of that was we'll contract the bureaucracy away to the Indians, and then we'll be rid of yeah. the BIA, and all you have now is a bigger yeah. BIA that now is to keep track of all the contracts. You know, so that once the bureau <laughs> figured out a new role for itself. Listen to the, I'll let you run, the, the last question I had just, I just happened to think, um, uh, were you, did, were you around in, I guess you were in Fairbanks when Stevens first arrived on the scene as U.S.
0: Attorney, well, yeah.
1: uh, what was he, was he as, as acerbic in those days as he is now? Was yeah, he, he was hothead,
0: always been a hothead. Uh, he, uh, was a hard-working, hard-driving, able prosecutor, uh, very political, uh, to the extent that it matters a hell of a lot, you know, uh, though Fairbanks was, uh, Fairbanks has always been, uh, hyper-political, I mean, you know, back then, the Ringstads and Erlins and uh, the First Families among the Republicans were there, and, uh, Ted, Ted Mixed, you know. Uh, but yeah, he was a very opinionated, uh, a very opinionated
1: guy. And was he uh, well thought of uh, up there in those days? Ah, uh, to the
0: extent you know, when he was there, he was a U.S. attorney, and there were no state attorneys, so he was uh, he was assistant U.S. attorney. Right. And uh, you know, yeah, I don't remember him taking much uh, gaff. I mean. How would he take it? Uh, we, I worked at Jessen's Weekly, and uh, our idea of a, a real exciting story was uh, that uh, Maddie Stepovich had another kid. I mean, you know, that was you know how, how investigative we were. Uh, the yeah, uh, and, and of course, Sneddon wasn't going to say anything bad about
1: him. Right, we well were boy. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I mean, it just uh, uh, he could really do no wrong, you know. And, uh, as a prosecutor, I think he probably had the good killer instinct of a prosecutor. And you know, let's face it, Ted is a, uh, an able, smart, uh, guy who's capable of, uh, ingratiating himself with, uh, with anybody if he chooses to do so.
1: Right. Well, the only reason I asked is it was interesting, uh, going through a couple of archives that, uh, you know, Stevens very briefly was hooked up with the American Association on Indian Affairs yeah. and represented Minto for a little window right. of time. And uh, in the whole politics of, of him getting involved with Minto, that was not Minto's idea. That was, that was the East Coast guys who he had ingratiated himself to. And there's a lot of correspondence about how there were a lot of people in the Nana and Minto <coughs> and elsewhere that didn't much think that Ted Stevens was the guy they wanted out in yeah. their mouthpiece because of what they viewed as his sort of lack of sensitivity to their problems back in the days when he was the U.S. attorney, but I've never been able to find anybody. I think Ted and, is... I mean, I talked to Ted about it, and of course, you know, what response I got
0: there. So. Ted wanted to be the United States Senator. He loved Bartlett. He admired Bartlett. Uh, and he was sincere. He was absolutely sincere because I admiration racial Bartlett. Uh, And he tried to emulate Barclay because he's during his first four or five years. Even now his constituent service uh, department is a Barclay model. It's the the best of three. Oh, yeah. Uh, But he's, you know, fundamentally, he's an opportunistic guy, you know. He's worked
1: hard to, to be where he is and stay where he is. Because actually that's the other thing um, and maybe you were back East at the time but it was it is interesting to Ted's credit that um, you know when he came back and immediately ran against Greening in 62 um, you know uh, which would be about as foolhardy as as me running against Ted in 1990 right I mean just some guy from yeah. wants to be somebody so you go yeah. out you know, the odds of doing it but it was actually a pretty smart yeah. move in a lot of ways but it is interesting that he ran very much on a pro land claim settlement platform um, and it's interesting going back in the archives and looking at at the written documents of what you know he wanted to do about land claims it was very uh, it was a very sophisticated view of the situation you know, yeah. that, that uh, you know the problem here, if if, if Snedden and these people could get through their racism and realize the problem here is not the natives, it's the federal government, and, and if we just got stole 105 million acres from them, and we could help these natives steal more, right? And the natives aren't just going to sit on it; they're going they're going to want to make a buck too. And we, you know, the Fairbanks and Anchorage Chambers of Commerce could be there to help them. Yeah. And for 1962, since that's pretty much the way it's turned out. Yeah. yeah. Um, but do you remember any of that in that campaign? Or was it just he was such a weak candidate that he... Well, really yeah.
0: yeah, that was the year he got caught with... Uh, the big big thing I remember was he and little Thomas getting caught tearing down signs and mm. uh, Craig or whoever right. the hell it was. <laughs> 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 he wasn't taken seriously. Nobody was listening a hell of a lot to him back then, I don't think. And, uh, of course, I disliked him from the... Uh, the Bartlett days, because he was such an arrogant prick when he had power. You know, he, he was uh, he was again a very close friend and loyal person to Bartlett. But uh, Ted has never treated staff uh, very generously, he, uh, you know, including his own. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> from our perspective, you know, he uh, uh, you know you get on the phone and you talk to an interior guy. And they say, well, I will have someone get back to you. And you just routinely say, I don't want to talk to Ted Stevens. I've talked to Ted Stevens before. Those guys ran that department just like it was the Gestapo. And I never could figure out what secrets they really had. I mean, you know, <laughs> I never suspected, I mean, that we were, we were brewing up a new teapot dome or anything. I never gave thought, you know, to the scandals. But they treated it like it was a, a, an armed incompetent. I think that kind of was a reflection of the whole administration. Well,
1: I've pretty well... Uh,
0: well, I don't think I've been very helpful. No, actually... I, uh, I have enjoyed, you know, as I've talked, I've remembered some things that uh, that uh, I hadn't thought about for a long, long time.
1: No, actually, uh, um, I think it certainly has been helpful to me. Um, one of the reasons that I personally was, was uh, both startled and attracted to your proposal from. You know, when you put these things back, I mean, now, big deal, but to go back to 1962 is that, you know, a big part of the state's problem, in my view, is that it didn't zen out the whole situation. It kept fighting it and fighting it and fighting it until the state eventually got trapped and overpowered. And what I liked about your proposal was, what it did is it put the state, in charge of setting the terms and conditions of the settlement. That's what Bartlett loved about it, right? As much as anybody else. You know, one of the, yeah. and and that it seems to me, if if the state, where you look when you look at where not only the state was in '62, but more importantly, where the native community was, that obviously by '64 to '66 it was too late because yeah. the lines had been drawn. But '62. You know, there was no Willie Hinsley around. There was, there was nobody around. I'll you tell know. you who has
0: a copy of the full memo and knew all about it, was another one of Bob Bartlett's Strange Bedfellows. That's Clifford Groh. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, because Cliff, about five, six years ago, called me up and told me that he was going through old papers and he'd found that, and told me about the huddles the Republicans had. So Bartlett did circulate it, uh, circulate it
1: uh, beyond Egan. Hmm. Well, I'll have to, uh, Cliff and I did this in early December, yeah. and uh, he said that somewhere in his garage, he's got all of the old McCutcheon yeah. memoranda and stuff. And it I expect th- I should get on The history
0: there. of the creation of the occlutment, or the uh, Tionic
1: Reserve has got
0: to be just
1: incredible. Well, you know, it's, I've, I'm going to try and do all of that. and it is. It is interesting, the, the Tyonic story is interesting because Cliff thinks that that he and McCutcheon were really at the cutting edge of the whole thing, and you talk to the people inside the Udall solicitor's office, and they'll tell you exactly the opposite story about how it all got worked out, and which of these is true is, is interesting, but what's real interesting is that money, there never would have been a claims act if it hadn't been for Tyonic. No, you're absolutely right heard. about that don i
0: thought about that for years It uh and who who did what whom i don't know but uh i know damn good and well that given the state of law and our perception of the law and our unwillingness to to tinker with the laws that then existed made it impossible for that to ever occur without a backroom deal being cut between the state federal plaintiff's lawyers approved by a judge happy to have of the whole goddamn mess you know but no legal authority for it whatsoever it just it was it was whether Stan uh, deserves the credit or not
1: uh, it was it
0: was damn fine
1: lawyering <laughs> no but I agree And the but the interesting thing and it was also fascinating to talk to Cliff is that you know they that all that deal went down to 63 and so by Sixty-five. They had the money, and Tyonic was pretty oh, yeah. well on its way, and so they still had all this big slush fund. And you know, people today, particularly kids out in the villages, you know, nobody gets on a plane unless somebody else pays for it. You know, there's oh, yeah. and and you know, there was no money around here. And Cliff says that they sat up in the top of the cook, and with Al Kaloa, and said, you know. Now that we got this money, this is a roll, and what we ought to do is, is Tyonic got a bet on the cum, and help the whole state get organized. And it was basically about two hundred thousand dollars worth of Tyonic money that put together that whole initial I think, meeting in '66. I think that's and, quite true. And you know, two hundred thousand bucks is a lot of money today, and in 1966, it's a hell of a lot load. of money. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so between that and and bankrolling AFN to new what about 150 grand the next year um, We never could have done it if it hadn't been for that slush fund
0: and and there was a symbolic victory that suddenly made something that seemed so impossible become possible you know, I'm scared to death of the sovereignty movement I just, it just scares me to death I'm not I'm not afraid for any other reason that the the mischief it can do to finding a solution. You know, I, I view it as, as being the first step toward creating uh, eternal barriers, at least eternal in terms of my mortal span, to uh, any progress being made whatsoever to, uh, to uh, you know, find some way to, to, to solve the problems that we're, we're wrestling with.
1: No, I've, I've gotten into, uh much trouble because of my agreement with that. I I drafted the uh, the. Uh, back Sheffield had this task force to figure out what to do about all that. And I was counsel to that and, and got paid to spend six months thinking about it. Yeah. And it was it was the report that that crowd did that that Matthews and Rabinowitz used to drive a stake through the heart of this thing last year. Yeah. And uh, uh, there have been a number of people in the native community less than enamored that. Yeah. One of their mouthpieces was the sort of intellectual brains behind the system yeah. court and attempting to trash the sovereignty movement. But I I fully agree with you. It's scary. know. somebody's gonna get hurt over it physically before this is over. Well, I think so too. And that's I, gonna really change the whole yeah. game. Well listen, I very much appreciate